0: I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press, and you're at Authors Unbound, our podcast, which brings passionate writers and passionate readers together. I'm here with Patrick Davis, publisher of Unbound Edition Press. Hey, Patrick, I don't know about Atlanta, but Minneapolis is cold this weekend.
1: It got cold in Atlanta too. It went down to 34 last night. So uh, yeah, I have been holed up and reading one of the The real treats was to get to revisit An Abundance of Caution by George Witte.
0: I've been reading it this weekend too, rereading it, and it's such a clear book. George is such a lucid writer, and yet it also has a lot of mystery. It also has aspects that I hadn't seen the first few times I read it. I really agree with that. There's this shimmering darkness
1: to this book, which is not to say that it's a dark book. It's a shimmering book, as much as it's a dark book to me. And one of the things I was reminded of in rereading it was earlier reviewers have compared George to Robert Frost. That he's sort of a you know these poems can seem gentle or they can seem accessible, you know, in a, in a domestic way and observation about nature. And anybody who has read their Frost knows that he's as far from a greeting card poet as he could possibly be. And uh, there are these shimmering observations that George makes. um, And then there's this dark shadow to these poems. And for me, that's where the mystery that you're talking about kind of resides in these poems.
0: I couldn't agree more. It makes me think of Frost saying, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. George's book really seems to me one that, you know, it's so skillful and yet the emotional depth, the ice is very thin on the, that deep emotion in this book and that lyrical strength. You're making
1: me think of one of my favorite poems in the book, which is Confinement, and it just shatters me every time I read it. The the ice just gives way, and I'm plunged into that poem, and I'm taken aback by it. It takes my breath every time. He makes it look so darn easy on the page, which is a sure sign that it's not.
0: The voice is right there, and there's a little bit of irony in that title, An Abundance of Caution. Uh, This is a book that takes a lot of risks.
1: It takes a lot of risks, and to your point about a change in the weather, that's one of his big subjects. The winds that are blowing through all of our lives these days are, are uneasy and stirring, and those kind of blow through this book. I think
0: it's a book that doesn't seem at all topical to me in a, in an easy way, and yet it speaks to our moment, to the moment of global pandemics, a moment of uh, climate crisis, and yet. It's so true to kind of human scale.
1: That's a perfect description of it. It is a human scale book that's taking on these big global and universal questions. And uh, so we're especially excited today to be the ones to publish An Abundance of Caution uh, from George Witte this coming spring, and uh, even more excited to have him with us today on Authors Unbound. It has been a wonderful uh, near, what, about a year now since we uh, learned of George's work and read his manuscript and have had the pleasure of um, working with him to get it ready for publication, which is just around the corner in spring of uh, 2023. So it's a great, great way to spend a Sunday getting to talk about poetry with you and George.
0: It sure is. It's a book with such intensity, emotional intensity, spiritual intensity, and also just this delight in form and delight in the lines and the sentences and the, the phrasing. It's. I have so much I want to ask, George.
1: Yeah, me too. I had the pleasure of rereading it last night. It's called An Abundance of Caution. It's George's fourth collection of poetry, and we're really lucky at Unbound Edition Press to be bringing it forth. Hi, George. Welcome to Authors Unbound.
2: Thank you. Thank you both for, I tell you, the day that the uh, acceptance note arrived was, it was the day before our daughter's uh, 21st birthday, I think. Uh, Yeah, 21st birthday. And uh, it was just you know, this gift somehow from nowhere that arrives, I never imagined, first of all, it would come back as quickly as it did. And then second, with such enthusiasm and and welcome. uh, And it it was a wonderful way to end the year. Oh, I'm so glad
1: when we review manuscripts we're not you know looking at the names or or even the list of publications where somebody has placed their work previously it's really just waiting for the sound on the page to happen and it happens so beautifully with this manuscript i i, I wrote to peter and said, oh, there's something special. We actually weren't finished reviewing all of the other manuscripts. And uh, and I said, oh, I want to go ahead and put a, a flag on this one because there's something special here. And Peter, I think you had a a story after we finished reviewing all the manuscripts. You had very detailed, highly academic notes, I think, that you wrote on George's manuscript. In Latin. In Latin, in fact. Yeah, that's right what they say.
0: I uh, remember vividly, now, now that you two mention it, this moment of first encounter with George's manuscript, which is now a forthcoming book. And in fact, it leads me into a question I wanted to ask you, George, because the opening poem, Trestle Jumping, is in my mind, one of the best opening poems, just as a poem, but also as an opener to a book that I've ever come across. And of course, that raises a high bar. It's one measure of this book's excellence, that it meets and exceeds those expectations. I was wondering if you could read it for us. Sure,
2: let me get to it.
1: By the way, Peter's highly academic Latin note said, this is the one, if I recall correctly.
2: Trestle Jumping. Chains barricade the gravel exit ramp, our bankrupt state abandoned years ago. Unlatched, the way descends to miles of road invisible on maps, near overgrown, Eroded where low water tunnels through. Lights out, we race pitch lanes between faint lines. Full moon, our sightless, disembodied guide. Only those who don't fear dying drive. Eyes wild or cool. No one eases off or breaks before the trestle bridge. Graffitied span, a palimpsest of wills and testaments. Godboy. DOA. XXRIP. Inebriate but sobered up, we strip to briefs, cinch bungee cords around slick waists, and climb the python-studded vertical. Each handhold rattles up a body's length until we reach the overpass, fix rope around protruding rebar, and prepare. A radio suggests alternatives. Be like they are, we'll be able to fly. Step off and try embracing air, Our screams the secret names of all who sang in kind.
1: Such a wonderful poem. Thank you. As an opening poem, as Peter was saying, it prepares us for the leap into this book, and the really beautiful tumble we take across these different subjects, whether they're domestic life, or illness, or the pandemic, or those seemingly simple moments of nature that capture us all but have so much more to them and then we turn the page and away we go into an abundance of caution it's a really special book
2: thank you you know the manuscript took a while to take shape in fact it didn't begin with that poem initially i i many different iterations of it over time as as because it wasn't really written as a book Um, it's it's a boiling down of a much larger you know, period of writing, probably over about 10 years or so. And I had a hard time figuring out how to organize this book and figure out, you know, what, what goes with what and and how can this work. But I finally found really enough poems to populate each of the four sections. And I started to understand what I'd been doing because I hadn't been doing it consciously um, and to make sure those sections work together. But I actually had another section in the book that I had completely cut out. Uh, you know, that I ultimately realized this just doesn't work here. Um, as well as a a number of other poems that were originally in it, that I also cut, um, and to arrive at this book. There's
1: a poem called an abundance of caution. There's a section called an abundance of caution. And the book itself is called an abundance of caution. And it strikes me that there are different types of caution There's a gathering up of our abundance of caution, kind of our safekeeping. There's the requirement for the abundance of caution in a dangerous time. Um, Within an abundance of caution, there's always the seed or thought of hope that things might work out if we're just careful enough. And I wonder what it was like for you writing not that there's a theme to this book, but writing within the context of how we gather caution around us for different purposes.
2: Well, as I was writing, again, the poems weren't really written consecutively. So I, I had kind of years ago, I, my previous two books were both quote unquote project books and that they were very intense focus collections that were single subject books. And I'd written them actually simultaneously just kind of toggling back and forth between the two kinds of poems I was writing. And so when I was done with them, I thought, I just want to write now. I want to I go back to who I was as a writer and not be doing project books and just write whatever I want. Um, and so I was working on very different kinds of poems, but then the pandemic hit and we started to all get these memos at work about an abundance of caution. And that phrase just kind of started to get to me a little bit. I mean, it's a cliche, right? We constantly see it in 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 public statements by public figures and, and authorities and so on. But it really resonated with me that we had entered into this period of time where everything seemed to be on edge. So much seemed to be at stake, um, not just to do with the pandemic. That was part of it. Really, our world kind of on an edge. I mean, between the global threat of climate change, the seemingly uh, just endless inundation of violence and bad news and, you know, weather events and, and other kinds of things in our assorted news feeds. Um, and I started just to think about that idea of kind of tiptoeing through life on, on what seemed like a very, very uh, precarious edge of things um, as a way of, of sort of thinking at least about part of this book and a couple of the sections in, in the book sort of do that, I think, you know, walk that edge.
0: One thing that, that impresses me in that structural movement uh, is the, the range of, of emotion and um, of attitude. And this happens even within single poems. I'm thinking of Boathouse Swallows, for example, in which there's a unvarnished um, glimpse at mortality and at the same time, the poem ends in joy, literally with the word joy. How do you get such dynamic movement into a poem?
2: When I'm writing, I'm usually after momentum of some kind. Um, I rarely start off poems anymore. As a young writer, I did, but um, not so much anymore uh, with an idea or a direction. Um, It's rare that I have a story that I want to tell, although I might end up telling one. Um, It's rare that I say, oh, you know, I've got this great idea that I've got in my notebook and and I'm now going to execute it. It almost always begins with just kind of a few words and a flow of sound, and then it emerges from there and it might be a narrative, it might not. And I think in that poem and some of the others, um, you know, I'm sort of following a thread of, of memory too. Um, and that place is set at a family house that we've had for going on like 60 years, something like that. Um, it was really uh, the place that was the most important to me growing up, the place where I felt most myself and most connected um and you know have a lot of and my it was my grandparents before ours and so it really extends deeply back in time for me um over generations and that's what i was thinking about in that poem um and god kind of extending i mean our time there will come to an end um probably fairly soon actually although my dad is still going strong but i'm not sure we're going to continue uh uh you know to hold on to the house and so i was just thinking about that idea of a place that you know has been Ours and and sort of ours and but, but also that we've been its um, for so many years and, and as a family and what it might be like to to say goodbye to it.
1: One of the things that I've wondered about with this book and and you spoke a moment ago about just sort of walking on this razor's edge is the lines in between what might be seemingly disparate subjects, but they're actually quite related, whether it's the dynamics within a family or illness or environmental risk. Um, And I think one of the ways in which you so deftly remove the cliche of an abundance of caution is by bringing these different scenarios, these different um, environments, whether personal or domestic. or or global into dialogue with each other. You sort of dislodge everything from from its pillars um, by putting these in comparison. And I know you've said this was not written all at once or or, or in any form of linear way, but that pattern, when did it reveal itself for you? And, and you realized that these juxtapositions would would help bring definition to this phrase and abundance of caution.
2: Yeah, I think probably later, actually in the process, because when I look at my um, keep a submission list, that's roughly, you know, it's pretty chronological. But I'll, I usually go through many drafts for poems and then and then I type them up. And when, when they're typed up, I'm pretty much done. It's rare that I revise I sometimes as well. Um, but when I'm done, I'm done. And so I keep a list. And I think Abundance of Caution as a poem and some of the poems around it that are in that section that could be you know, considered to be not so much about climate change, but about the condition of, of being in an um, existential crisis. Um, they, they probably were written a few years ago. I mean, during, during the period of time when these things all were coming together, you know, that we had something that was literally exterminating um, substantial portions of the human population around the world Um, and it was a virus and at the same time um you know this this you know decades-long uh uh threat uh, of climate change that uh and and global annihilation that really you know had been taken seriously on and off over the years but only again really started to to emerge in the last few years um as, as i think probably humanity began to contemplate its own mortality in in a serious way for the first time in a very long time um so it, probably a couple of years ago is when, uh, two, three years ago, I'd say, is when I was writing those poems, uh, at least a number of them. Um, and when I when that, part of the book started to pull together.
1: That growing sense of urgency um, that you just identified, these things kind of keep layering in on top of each other, don't they? Until we finally realize, oh, oh, wow, we're really in trouble here. You know, I think the manuscript was originally entitled the way back. Um, And that seems one of the things you're exploring as well, which is how in the world do we recover?
2: The poem, The Way Back, is it draws on the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale and kind of twists it in. It's a somewhat nightmarish tale anyway, but um, twists it into its own little uh, sort of nightmare story. Um, And that was written actually quite a while ago. That goes back, I don't know, six, seven, eight years probably, something like that. And Actually, that section of the book, which is, I suppose, the darker, darkest section of the book—the underpass section—I originally led the book with that. Um, and I, I, I've never really been one to get um, feedback um, from other writers. I've never taken a writing class in my life. I've never been really part of a writing group. Uh, I think I. Oh, that's not true. I did join one one time, and it just didn't work for me. So I, I kind of work on my own. But I, for this, for this. Manuscript, because I was having trouble organizing it. I did sign up for one of those manuscript consults, um, and a poet um, who read it really gave me some great advice. I just thought on some of the poems, you know, to to revise some that she thought I should cut, and then in particular, just in reorganizing it um, and maybe not leading uh, with such a such a dark opening. Uh, She said, you know, she liked the poems in that section a great deal, but she just wondered if they needed to go first. Uh, And that helped me a lot when I was was revising and rethinking things.
0: Coming to the form of the manuscript is almost its own version of writing a poem.
2: Yeah, I I think it is for anyone. I mean, obviously, if you have a project book, that probably helps self-organize a bit. Um, But if and, and maybe you're following a, you know, a chronology or just a narrative flow or what have you or something. Um, you know, a story that your overall story you want to tell. And here, though, it was less about that and more just about, you know, what's the balance of poems, both lengthwise, you know, I don't, there aren't really very many long poems in this book, just a couple that are over, you know, two pages, I think, or, 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 or if that. Um, Most of them are basically one page or a page and a half. So try to balance off the shorter ones with the medium ones. And at the same time, find some poems that speak to each other, you know, across boundaries and barriers. I didn't want to necessarily have it be wrote, you know, uh, four sections, here they are. Um, So some of the poems actually that ended up in the the sections of the book previously had been in completely other sections, you know, had been with other poems. But as I started to reread and kind of put them on the floor and read them together side by side, sort of shuffled things around, it began to make a lot more sense to me.
1: You said a moment ago that you had never taken a, a workshop or been part of a writing group. Um, I'd love to know when you started writing poems, what brought you to writing poems? We, a number of our guests, Jesse Nathan, Sarah O'Reilly, have um, similar backgrounds. They are both extremely fine poets, but not part of the MFA industrial complex and found their path to poetry in in their own way as well. I wonder what yours might have been.
2: I started writing um, out of the blue when I was in high school. I I think it was my junior year, age 16. And something changed in me then. I think prior to that, I'd been a good little grade grubber and homework doer um and probably was headed toward i don't know what i was headed toward but i was mainly headed toward getting good grades and uh you know i played a couple of sports and was living my life in high school and i started writing uh poetry i came to it through somebody that i knew and i also got into drama which had been just unheard of for me like i would never have gotten up on stage or or you know i was very very shy uh and, but those two things happened around the same time. And I got very involved, I was really bitten by the theater bug. I got very involved in theater and in, in acting and writing for it. Um, I even wrote, you know, lyrics for it when I was in college for a musical. Um, but the writing really started then. And I kind of had my own, um, you know, sort of single reader then, those first couple of years in high school. And then when I got to college, I did take a a class in poetry, but it wasn't a writing class; it was a reading class because I, where I went didn't have writing undergrad at all, so there was no creative writing period. And eventually, I got a um, I took an independent study with uh, James Applewhite, who was uh, one of the poets on campus at Duke. And Jim was so great to me. You know, he he didn't oversteer; he mainly nodded and listened and provided gentle um, but honest feedback. And it was so welcome and so great. He was the perfect person for me at that time. Um, and then I decided not to go get an MFA. I, got an, I, I ended up getting a master's degree because I felt that I just wanted to read a lot more. Um, but I really understood that probably the workshop environment wouldn't be right for me. Um, although I think it is right for other people. I'm not criticizing it in any way. I think for some people, it's incredibly valuable. It's the first time they're validated as writers um, themselves. Um, uh, so I think if it works for you, whatever works for you, that's what you should do. Uh, work, wh- what worked for me was doing it my own way.
0: I also did a master's and on an MFA and got an MA and years later when I did wish to join the MFA industrial complex, there was a bit of a bureaucratic snafu getting me in. And I called up a former teacher who told me, I'd be glad to give you an F. <laughs> but um, it brings up a question I hadn't thought of, which was, if, if I did bring you, George, which I'd love to do if geography were more convenient, into uh, my undergraduate poetry
2: writing class this week, what advice
0: would you give these students?
2: I think it's really important to write every day. It doesn't mean that you need to carve off immense amounts of time. But you want to get into the habit of writing every day. So for years and years, I did that. I did that I did that in high school. I did it in college. I did it in grad school. I've done it all the years that I've worked and through a lot of different environments and challenges and changes. Um, now, have there been days when I haven't written? Sure. But I opened that notebook up and I might sit there and stare out the window for half an hour and do nothing but it's I try to find some time every day what's been you know when I was younger and I wasn't married and they didn't have children and I didn't have a job that was so taxing um, I would get up early um, I'd normally be writing from about five to um, seven uh, seven fifteen something like that and then get ready you know go to the office and go to work obviously when I was in college I was you know Doing all nighters and all that—that's a different, different story. But that's what everyone does, right? When you're in college. But just in terms of developing a habit, um, I really wrote early in the morning, and then as time went on, I had to evolve. And uh, eventually, it, it was difficult being a writer taking time away from from family, especially because you're you basically are saying, "I need to be alone," and that means you don't have my time and attention. And I have not been successfully able to do that. I'm at home, so I evolve the habit of writing on the train uh, to and from work, and I basically get in a good 35 minutes in the morning and a good 35, you know, or 45 minutes if I'm getting the slow train, which I sometimes will get, so I can get in a solid hour, hour and a half um, every day, and I do that. Um, I'm able to do some writing on weekends. Again, I, I tend to get up early. Still, I have a longstanding habit of getting up early, so before everyone's awake, I can get in my time. Um, But I think for students, a lot of people find themselves backed into corners, um, you know, writing wise. They can't get it done. They make excuses. They don't do it. They can't do it. So I'll write on the weekend and the weekend comes. Well, the weekend gets pretty busy. And then the next thing you know, you haven't done any writing. Well, I'll I'll write when I'm on vacation, you know, or write over the summer. Well, then summer comes, or vacation comes and, you know, you don't really feel like writing or or it just doesn't work out or you've got other plans or this or that. And pretty soon you're not writing anymore because you've created the conditions by which you cannot write. You've made it too difficult. And, you know, or you've said, I can't possibly write unless I have absolute silence and a place of my own and two to three solid hours. And, you know, by gosh, I'm not writing unless I have that. Well, very few people have that. Really, honestly, like you might, if you're married to another academic, you might have that, Um, but for the most part, you will not. Um, So finding that time somewhere in your day doesn't have to be a lot, but it needs to be consistent. That's probably the best advice I would give to anyone who really wants to write.
1: The difference between writers and people who want to be writers is that writers write.
2: And, And you need that time, you need that time to practice. You've got to practice. You know, I would say practice as much as you can, even if it's not congenial to you, practice in forms, even if you're not a formalist. Just learn them, do them. It's okay. You you know, you'll be able to use them later. It's just like having a, a a good toolbox. Tools may just sit there unused for a long time, but you know, when you need the right screwdriver, it's it's awful nice to be able to have it ready to go if you need it. Um, so just, you know, take the time, practice, learn. And if you if you're writing every day everything this isn't so consequential because you've got more time um so you can afford to practice you can afford to write bad poems you can afford to fail you can afford to you know um experiment and, and move on from it because you've got more time and but all that time you're going to carry with you what you learned you'll carry it forward
1: isn't that true the importance of having time to write bad poems i mean i have just you know this hideous ghazal that I'll <laughs> never ever <laughs> let let go in my in my own guilty conscience. But it's important to give yourself permission to write badly, just to get it out of your system and to say, "Well, that landed with a thud, you know." And okay, so that's done, and I'm, I I don't have to be scared of it happening anymore. It, it happened. It's done. It's on a page. You flip the page.
2: I write bad poems all the time. Yeah,
0: there's a line of. Robert Lowell's from one of his blank first sonnets that is, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I mean, there are probably a few exceptions, you know, involving heavy machinery and so on, but it's really true. You're not going to get better unless you fall on your butt. This image of the well stocked toolbox uh, reminds me of another aspect of your book, which is uh, this ability to move between traditional form, as we call it, and free verse. Do you have a sense of when you're going to use one or the other?
2: Not going in. Um, I'm not really a formalist. I I wish I could be. I'd love to be one when I grow up. Um, But I have a, at least from my estimation, compared to Anthony Hecht and John Hollander and, and, you know, um, people like that, I have a fairly rudimentary uh, approach to form. Uh, and I have iambic pentameter on the brain, which I'm constantly trying to shed myself of and 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 been working really hard to move to move away from. But um usually when I start off, i I never sit down and say, "Okay, here's a sonnet, or you know, couplets would be great for this or or you know, uh, uh, rima or what have you. Um and whenever I do that, whenever I sit down to try to write something like that, it inevitably ends up just being, you know, uh, an execution of verse as opposed to a poem. So most of the way I work is I just start off following that thread of sound, a few words, something, and I'm trying to get momentum. That's really what I'm after. I just want to have a push forward, some sense of attack and push on it. I like to start strongly. I don't like to necessarily ease into poems. So I like to really, you know, just start and, and, and whenever I can find that starting spot, it, it might emerge after a while, then I can go and push forward. But then I start redrafting and relooking at it, and things can change an awful lot. And I might not be able to actually get to the poem unless I'm able to find a form for it. And it can sometimes be several drafts before I recognize even that there is a form to be had there. Um, and so I'm chiseling away, and I might eventually hit upon that form. Um, I might have a very long poem that I realize, you know what, this thing needs to be boiled down majorly. And it really is a short poem and probably a formal poem. And then I can kind of find and select what I think the strongest parts of it are and reshape it. Um, But the form emerges through revision if there's going to be a form. And and just in terms of free verse, there's usually a flow. of some kind of rhythm, even in the free verse, that there, it's not purely free. I, I write actually a lot of poems in blank verse, um, but it, even the free verse has some kind of a flow to it. Um, and I may be making a deliberate choice not to go formal there um, or to have some rhymes, but not a rhyme scheme um, so that, you know, the the poem just flows in a different way. And again, I'm after a certain kind of momentum and sound. And I don't it doesn't always um, need to conform to a specific form.
1: You've said a few things that just intersected for me that brings to mind something interesting, sort of writing every day and how we decide to approach a poem and kind of get in the space of writing and and then how the poem kind of reveals itself right to us if it's going to require a form or or shine. Um, if, if we bring a certain formal approach to it. And uh, you're reminding me of a conversation I had with Wayne Kostenbaum recently, and he was talking about writing on the train as well and how it's the actual motion of the train um, that sort of literally gets him kind of into the rhythm of uh, how he's going to write. And I wonder if your habit of train writing um, brings rhythm to the language for you in any way, um, or if that's just happy circumstance.
2: Happy circumstance. I don't feel that when I'm writing. I mean, it's a familiar view out the window. Every so often, I sometimes do draw on that view, uh, but it's a very familiar view for certain kinds of things. But um, it really is just kind of a neutral space. That's what I like about it. I like writing in airports too. I love airports and planes for writing. Just those kind of bland, those bland neutral spaces um, really worked for me. There's nothing to distract me if I'm at home. Sometimes you, know, you can always get yourself another cup of coffee. There's always five errands waiting to be done. Um, you know, there's always something that, gnawing at the edges that you know you ought to be doing other than writing. But if you're just on in a transit place, there's really nothing to do. You're waiting for your train. You're waiting for your stop, and might as well get some writing done. It's a great, great place to do it. There are two
1: poems that have just grabbed me every time. One of them is "Reap." Uh, and one of them is Confinement. And both of these poems are beautiful in their heaviness. And I wonder if you might read one
2: of those two poems. Sure, I'd love to. I'll get to Reap. Reap. We sing what we have sown, low voices hushed and hope and shame before whatever ear might listen in. Excuses salting praise as meat is seasoned to devour, as we devour our kind. Forgiveness sought but not required by covenant. To each his own, to each alone the terror quickening. Who knows when the wind began to summon strength and turn around its thermal axis, made great by our debris and dust. Where we conceal most secret selves, it touches down in basement, shelter, roadside ditch. We learn the words embedded anagrams. So rush to pair a God's indifferent nails and rape the body offered in all innocence and gnaw the unripe hanging pair of love.
1: Bit of a mic drop poem. <laughs> sure is. In your real life, your life off the page, you've been a publisher and, and an editor. What's it like um, kind of being on the other side of the equation where um, you've certainly brought your own editorial eye to your work and all of the care that goes into that. But I just am curious what it's like for you as a writer to, to step to the, on the other side of the looking glass and be an author and not an editor.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, in my, my day job, I'm editor in chief at St. Martin's press. Um, and that sounds very, um, sort of grand, but what I mainly do is work on books. Um, yes, I have a management responsibility to the other editors and, 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 you know, to, uh, sort of some of the strategy of of how we publish, but the main part of my job is actually editing books and we don't publish poetry. So they really are parallel worlds for me. Um, but I find that the, writing side for me does help inform my editing and just in terms of what I look for Um, basically in editing sentences. uh, I think I have a pretty keen eye for how things sound, for the cliches and removing them as well as removing. A lot of writers just, they fall in love with adverbs. And so you're sitting there with just all kinds of dead words. It's just kind of like clearing brush out, which is tedious, but necessary. So I th- I think I the poetry helps me add value in in um especially in being concise uh with certain kinds of phrasing but and can can help quite a bit in sort of detailed line editing. Um you know just in terms of the life of it though I would say I'm not inhibited a lot of people would I think say that being an editor and being a writer you know um are mutually exclusive things but there actually are a number of other poets who are also editors at at you know bigish publishing houses, um, it's not unheard of. Uh, we we actually have a couple of other poets at St Martin's Press. They don't they're not editors, but they work in different capacities. So I think you can balance those lives. And again, the biggest challenge is finding time. Uh, most of all of my editing gets done. Nearly all my editing gets done on my own time. It's very rare that I can work on editing in the office because answering email for the most part these days. I don't get many calls anymore, but I do get them. Uh, but I am in meetings and emails and, you know, doing mailings and just, you know, supporting my authors. Uh, but the actual editing gets done mostly at home, at night, on the weekends. Uh, so that's where the time comes in. Again, being super disciplined about the writing. Uh, but it is doable. And uh, But the big press side of things, I, I don't know, it, it doesn't help, it doesn't hurt. Uh, when I'm submitting poems to magazines, it doesn't help. I don't have any real connections with any of them. It doesn't hurt. Uh, I'm just kind of in there with everyone else on Submittable. Now <laughs> when you send know, it in and, you know, you, t- you take your chances and see what you got.
1: Indeed. Peter, maybe we should turn to our Proust Questionnaire Authors Edition that we've, uh, that we've conjured up just to, uh, to create a, f- a few little
0: moments. Do you want to kick us off today? This is from our list. What quality do you most envy in other writers?
2: I think I most envy people like Kay Ryan, who can pack so much into such a small space. Writing for me and reading poetry, I think is partly a mnemonic device and partly a a means of concentration. My brain tends to bounce around an awful lot. And so when I'm writing and when I'm reading poetry, I just feel that I am concentrating and intense and intent in a way that I'm maybe not in other aspects of life. And it's especially valuable to me to be able to apprehend, almost on one page if I can, uh, if it's that concise, a, a poem wholly. I like long poems too, and I've written many of them, and, and I love reading long poems also. But that ability to pack a lot into a little... And Kay Ryan is is probably our modern... You know, exemplar of that, obviously Emily Dickinson, um, Keats in his shorter poems, Rilke in some of his knockout shorter poems, although he had long ones too, obviously, um, Yeats in some of the, especially the early poems. But, you know, Yeats is, is just an absolute model of, of concise writing and, and getting a, everything out of every line. Um, I value that the most and envy it the most. I
1: have a question here, which is as an author, what regrets do you have?
2: I think my regrets are tied up in my own practices. When I made the comments about going in alone, my biggest mistake has been not actually seeking out mentors. I think even though going in alone probably provided me with a kind of strength, um, and the ability to, and I, and I built the, um, I built the ability to endure and persist over time. And a lot of people who I think were more talented than I for sure in in college just didn't keep on. Um, I I think by going alone I was able to endure, but I think not seeking mentors, not seeking um, other readers, you know, um, not making uh, myself not, not sort of putting myself out there more, not risking more um, as a writer, maybe even as a person. I think those are probably my biggest regrets. Um, I think I evolved somewhat peculiarly in the way that, you know, kind of a bonsai tree does, you know, where you trim it and it kind of comes to an odd shape. Um, And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's, maybe that's who I was meant to be, but I still think I wish I had um, not necessarily gotten an MFA, but that I just sought out more mentors and more more readers along the way.
1: Pete, do you want to wrap us up for today? Our final proof
0: question? George, what is your idea of perfect happiness in your literary life?
2: I think when I really worked on a poem and it surprises me deeply, you know, it isn't a poem, it isn't the poem that I thought it was gonna be. Um, It isn't a quote unquote publishable poem, although it might be. Um, It it isn't necessarily a poem that I imagine myself writing or that I would even identify myself as, as you know, the author of or or kind of a typical poem. that is when I'm happiest because then I know I've grown somehow without necessarily intending to or but, but somehow I've pushed through and I've gotten to something that I didn't expect to get to. And that's happiness for me.
1: That's the perfect note to end on. What a great conversation, George Woody. Thank you so much for joining us uh,
0: today on Authors Unbound.
2: Thank you both. This is great.
0: Thanks everyone for listening to Authors Unbound. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher, whether it's Amazon, Apple, you name it. Thanks so much for enjoying this conversation with George Witte on Authors Unbound.